Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And we're located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in that great big, beautiful town bank building. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank building directly across the street from Winkies. We also, and particularly wonderful at this time of the year, we get to service our clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. If you'd like to put a voice with a face, you can go to ellenbecker.com. We have lots of information. And if you really enjoy, which I know you will today, our conversation, you can go to ellenbecker.com and scroll down to radio shows and hit Money Sense. And you can share the show with any of your friends or anyone that you feel would really benefit and be interested in hearing my guest. And today is um, a really great day because it's something that is very near and dear to my heart as being a business owner. I have Michael Christina, who is a PhD and he is the CEO of the Center for Influential Leadership and the Fresina Group. And, you know, this is, uh, so welcome to the show, first of all, Michael. Thank you, Karen. It's such a pleasure to be with you. You know, we've been doing, I've been doing this show for 35 years. And one of my goals was I would never sell anything. What I really want to do is I want to bring information to my listeners so that they can make really good decisions about their life. And when someone's tuning in and saying, what is she talking about? We're going to talk about a great book, Leading with Your Upper Brain, How to Create the Behaviors that Unlock Performance Excellence. And they might say to themselves, what has this got to do with money sense? (laughs) (laughs) Why is she interviewing here? But, and I'll let you answer that yourself, but I know for me in business, one of the most expensive things that I have to deal with is training employees and working with employees and they leave or it doesn't work out and being able to identify that really good fit for our our company. And so that's really what you're talking about today. And I'm just going to start the topic because as I was reading your book, I remember saying to a friend of mine, Dan Burris, I said, you know, we've got our employees, uh, we'll be sitting down with them and talking to them. And I really want them all to be extraordinary. And I want to talk about them being extraordinary. And he just looked at me with a smile on his face. And he said, Karen, you can't tell your employees to be extraordinary. They have to choose to be extraordinary. And I really feel that that's very much of what your book is about. It's people for themselves choosing to grow, choosing to excel, choosing Mm -hmm. to be more. And so welcome to the show again. And let's Let's talk about how did you get involved in the whole concept of leading with your upper brain? And it goes without saying that I'm going to have to ask you, what's the lower brain about? <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. And thanks again. Uh, just to the idea of people choosing, uh, people do get to choose, but leaders have the ability to help influence their choice. 
and they can choose positively and they can choose negatively. They do make both choices. And that's the contrast between how the upper brain works and how the lower brain works. But leaders have a tremendous amount of influence in helping them make those choices. Uh, just about once a month, something shows up on Harvard Business Review or Inc. Magazine uh, that people don't quit their jobs, they quit who they work for. And they're making that choice to quit based on the dynamics of how their brain is disruptive relative to how they experience behavior of other people. And this is something that goes all the way back to my own professional career. I'm going to turn 68. Um, I'm in three careers. Uh, I had uh, a 20 plus year military career, served in the Army Medical Department, predominantly in combat divisions with combat field medical support, got to my first brick and mortar facility, Tripler Regional Medical Center, uh, near the end of my career, where I was the executive officer and running the Joint Commission preparation dynamics for a host of Department of Defense facilities, not just the Army, which was my primary branch, but uh, in joint work with the Navy and Air Force as well uh, throughout Asia and uh, much of the Western Pacific. And uh, it just came to be that I noticed that teams that seem to have a greater sense of unity and harmony within their behavior dynamic of the team and with their leader always performed at a higher level than teams that didn't. And that sort of sparked uh, my interest in uh, not trying to enhance the degree of technical skills uh, in how teams perform, but functioning on a list of behavior skills or behavior capacities. And uh, so that started on the operational side. I was actually in leadership positions. I had teams I was responsible for. I was being held accountable for outcomes. So there was a lot of skin in the game for how do we put these people together and get them to work with the greatest degree of unity and harmony and clarity and produce really high levels outcomes. Then I had two unique uh, further assignments from that. Um, I was actually on faculty at West Point at the U.S. Military Academy uh, at West Point in New York uh, and uh, taught uh, in philosophy, moral philosophy, focusing on effective behaviors, but also in the leadership branch. And then from there, uh, so I got to do some academic work and do some academic study. And I did a postgraduate study at Cambridge in England, uh, looking at behavior dynamics of performance of the Hastings Center in New York, and then was assigned to the Army Medical Research and Development Branch, uh, where we were actually looking at a, a whole amount of behavioral facets uh, as how people function under high degrees of stress, combat-related stress. And why some people can engage in that stress and perform very high and other people are put in the same type of scenario and they go into this freeze or flight mode and their brain just locks up on them. And uh, the relevance to this, of course, to business and to money sense is that how people's brains work determines their ability to manage money successfully, make wise investments, hire appropriately, retain top talent. Uh, so there is a significant dollar figure uh, in our book, Leading with Your Upper Brain, research uh, figures gave us a, a very high number. Close to $300 billion a year in U.S. industry is lost productivity. Fundamentally related in what we want people to understand is that the brains of people aren't working the way the brain is designed to work for performance in their jobs. Uh, a high number of people are going to work with the mindset of just getting to work, trying to survive through the day. And, and, and get out of there with the least amount of turmoil, the least amount of stress, uh, the least amount of conflict. You don't get high performance outcomes in that kind of mindset. Uh, when I took over uh, 
a healthcare organization and was doing a town hall meeting with a, a bunch of the employees from various departments. Uh, I remember uh, one of the senior nurses calling out it from the back of the room. We want to know what you're going to do to us. What are you going to change to us? You know, you're our fifth leader in, in eight years, a high turnover of senior leaders for this uh, system. And uh, folks were, were burned out on new mission statements, new vision statements, a new set of core values. Every time there was turnover in the C-suite, they got something different uh, and it was confusing them. They couldn't focus on what the real strategic aims of the organization were, what the key elements of the strategic plan. So the key of the book is really helping leaders, guide leaders in their own behavior in ways that maximizes this neurochemical connection in the brains of their team members. So the brains of people work the way the brain's designed to work. So you get the outcome and make your plan successful. That's that's the, the big, big 30,000 foot view of the book. You know, what do leaders need to do in their own behavior? And so the, the most popular tagline so far coming out of the book that seems to be quoted in reviews and other places is that individual leader behavior becomes the single most important predictor to how a team will perform. So for fun, we'd like to call this neurochemical bartending. If you as a leader know how to mix the right combination of neurochemicals that drive performance in somebody's brain, which is the upper brain, and avoid stimulating the neurochemical dynamic of the lower brain, which is the fear response brain, the survival brain. So you have the two brains within your brain. You have the upper brain for performance and well-being. And I want to emphasize that too. This isn't just about performance. This is about enhancing engagement. This is about enhancing purpose. This is about giving people meaning and value and purpose for coming to work. And so that nurse that challenged me in my first town hall, when she asked me, what was I going to do? I said, I only have prim one primary aim. I want to make coming to work here so pleasurable for you that you wake up in the middle of the night disappointed that it's not time to go to work yet. Now, that was hyperbole, obviously, and, and I thought I'd get a good laugh out of it, but nobody laughed, and then there was this real long sort of pregnant pause, as we say, and somebody else yelled out from the back of the room if I'd passed my drug test yet and uh, for employment there, and uh, but you can transform cultures this way. And it wasn't but about three or four months um, that one of the senior nurses came up to me. We met in the hallway. We were just passing, and I greeted, and she greeted, and I asked her how she was doing and really meant it and took time to engage her. And she said, well, I'll be honest and tell you, I'm not waking up in the middle of the night yet disappointed. It's not time to come to work. And I said, well, that's all right. We've only been at this a few months. It, it can take a while. She says, you know, to understand, the good news is I'm not waking up in the middle of the night to take my anti-anxiety medication so I can come to work and function. I'm off my medication. So you affect somebody's life like that as a leader. It doesn't get any better than that. Uh, and this is what leaders have the opportunity to do. If they understand how their behavior influences what's going on, not in the psychology and personality of another person, but in the, the hardware of their brain, and that a leader's behavior is software that influences how that hardware functions, this is the new uh, performance strategy, and, I, and that's and I'm calling it that. Whether you need financial performance, whether you need healthcare performance, regardless of your industry, if you're looking for something that's going to make the difference for you, uh, moving forward into the 21st century post-pandemic, 
you've got to start leveraging behavior strategies as the key to your performance outcome and creating organizational cultures that are healthy and feed the well-being of indiv individual people who work for you. My guest today is author of an absolutely fabulous book that we've been talking about, Leading with Your Upper Brain, How to Create Behaviors that Unlock Performance. Excellent. And when we come back, what I'd really like to do, uh, Michael, is talk about starting at the top. I mean, it's a great overview of the book, but this has been such a tough year. We've got the pandemic that we've just been going through, the shortage of people working, business owners are taxed to the limit, trying to figure out how to get their businesses going. And yet the most vital piece that we have in our business, I feel, is that it's our employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have we have to have our employees feeling that sense that you were trying to do of wanting to come to of understanding that they're part of the process of the success of the company. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today I have, uh, it's a really great, exciting show because the book is Leading with Your Upper Brain, How to Create the Behaviors that Unlock Performance Excellence. It is by Michael Frisina. 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 Yeah, you're going to sing it. It's an Italian name. So if you sing it, it comes out just right. Frisina. I get it. And <laughs> it's a great name. And talking during the break, it's I said that there is a little, if there's a saying in his introduction, so the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And it made me think about my own grandchildren who are in college. It made me think about employees that are coming to work in our company that are younger. And emphasis is just putting uh, often, so often on knowledge. It's not the emphasis isn't on being able to be resilient and to be able to be a lifelong learner and all the different things that you talked about, critical reasoning, um, judgment, creativity. So they get a degree, but nowhere there does it have anything listed about those subjects. Right. You know, the, these concepts that we talk about and teach in the book, and I'm sharing with you today, just don't apply to becoming a successful business person uh, and succeeding in your career and vocation and calling. These are life principles. Uh, and uh, we have gotten away from the concept of being able to understand how to think appropriately when confronting a particular life event. We live our life in conflict and confrontation and I don't mean that in a negative way we life is lived by these bombarding elements of events uh, you wake up today and you're driving to work and there's road construction and you have to take a detour and immediately your lower brain goes well where are we going to go which way am I going to go am I going to get to my work on time am I going to be uh, late for my first meeting and there are so many little word changes that you can use that help the brain adjust and move from this neurochemical impulse to fear, loss and doubt, worry and anxiety into the first stage of the upper brain when you confront a disruptive event, which is discovery. What does this event mean? What does it mean to me? How is it going to affect what I do on a daily basis? And this can be a medical diagnosis. 
and, and I've had to apply this personally in uh, my life this past year in 2022 with uh, a serious medical diagnosis. And so being able to put into practice my own life, what I've been teaching for decades was very fruitful uh, to the, the degree that I, I was, uh, and I don't use this in a, a religious sense, but ministering to my medical team uh, who seemed to think I was in denial about my diagnosis because I just seemed to be okay with it. And so positive, I had to get them positive with me to say, this is going to be okay. You know, and I'm not in denial. I understand the seriousness of all of this, but I'm not going to let the magnitude of this event impact my response capacity to the event to put me in the part of my brain to give me the highest level of optimal outcome. And so this is how this is a very practical, very real management tool for life events. And uh, there's a, a term, the events plus response equals outcome. There are a host of people I could give credit to for bringing that equation into my life. Tim Kite is one who runs a, a, a group called the R Factor. Um, there was a University of California psychologist back in the 60s. Uh, Jack Canfield put it as the very first success principle in his book, The success principles, where this idea of you have events that happen, you have a response to the event, and depending upon which one you let win, if you let the magnitude of the event get higher than your response capacity to the event, the outcome is minimized. And Viktor Frankl, uh, in his book uh, on search for meaning that he wrote after his Nazi concentration camp experience at the end of World War II as a psychiatrist, the idea that between every stimulus and every response, and this is something that even Stephen Covey wrote about back in 1986 when he first published uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that we as human beings have the, the opportunity to accept personal accountability and responsibility that between every event and before I choose to respond to that event, I can think about my response and my thought is going to create an associating emotion. That emotion is going to create associating energy, and that mental energy is going to dr drive my final choice and behavior to outcome. And so if I allow my response to be more relevant than the size of the event, I win. I optimize the outcome. And what happens with complexity of work environment, complexity of life, uh, major uh, event changes that are volatile and they're uncertain and they're chaotic and they're ambiguous like a pandemic, the response capacity gap shrinks so that people get an event and they immediately react. They don't give themselves any time in thinking about and choosing a response that's going to be uh, greater in creativity, greater power of critical reasoning capacity, and maximizing all the dynamics that the upper brain is built for, including calming the stress and calming the fear for well-being, uh, th that you can learn how to do this, and then it becomes a life management tool. And it's a life management tool working with your teenagers. Uh, it's a life management tool working in your uh, marriage and significant other relationships. It's a, it's a life principle that works at work when you have a leader transition with a team and the team members don't know the leader and they're all paranoid and worried about what the new leader is going to do. The leader comes in needing to make immediate result changes, but they didn't get to pick their team. So they've got to try to win with who they came to the dance with, so to speak. And everybody's lower brain in cortisol overload, which is the neurochemical managing fear threat response. Everybody goes into a survival mode 
And somebody's got to be able to confront these events in a way that in discovery and integration, they stay in their upper brain, they maximize their critical thinking, they maximize their initiative, they maximize innovation, they maximize the joy and meaning and purpose and value of their work. And they can lead everybody else there out of the morass of that lower brain fear threat response. You know, that all sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all very powerful. But, and I relate it to a little saying that I have that I actually have in my shower. I see every day live by what you trust, not by what you fear. And if Love I'm it. hearing what you said, one of the first steps to making that happen, what you're talking about, um, is to pause. That, that's right. You, you've got to give yourself time to think about what's happening, right? And and this is the interesting thing. The way that you connect to your upper brain in a high threat event is you stop. The first thing is you just stop and, and you ask yourself this question. What does this event really mean to me? And as soon as you start asking the question, what does this event mean? Rather than asking, why is this happening to me? See, when you start with, why is this happening to me? You automatically go to the lower brain. There are no positive responses to why is this happening to me? So it's an automatic trigger for your brain physiologically to go to the lower brain. You're creating a self-imposed threat dynamic to yourself by asking a threat-oriented question. Why is this happening to me? But when you ask yourself, what does this event mean to me? Now you open up the upper brain because that's a discovery question. And you can start self-analysis on the meaning of what this event means to you. Uh, even as something as simple as having to take a detour uh, to work where you have a GPS and it'll reprogram for you and, and you, you don't live in a metropolitan area so you, you know all the side streets and you know how to get uh, to your work regardless of the, um, the detour sign. But the, the lower brain is, is built to default to keep us safe when we really need to be safe when what we're fearing is real. You know, you're in a combat environment. You get a high stress of adrenaline. Uh, you don't want to have to stop and think about what you do. You use your training and you want to be trained to be reactive so that your brain almost goes on autopilot to, to making the decision you needed to make. Because if you stopped and took time to think about what you needed to do, that stop might uh, be detrimental to your outcome. So there are real threat dynamics and the brain can save us in those real threat dynamics. The problem, Karen, for many, many, many people, they don't encounter those real threat dynamics frequently through the course of a day. So many of the threat dynamics that they encounter, they imagine. Uh, and they imagine them by immediately going into this negative mindset that why is this happening to me? Why does this always happen to me? And there is a psychological phenomenon called learned helplessness. You know, this happens to me. It never happens to anybody else. This always happens to me and never happens to anybody else. And this is always going to keep happening to me. I call it the Winnie the Pooh paradox. If you've ever read Winnie the Pooh, if you have grandchildren or children, the very first paragraph of Winnie the Pooh starts with Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh coming down to breakfast. Well, Christopher Robin is walking, but he's dragging Winnie by his ankle, bumping his head on the back of the stairs coming down the stairs. Winnie says, I know there's got to be a better way of coming down the stairs, except on the back of my head except I'm so busy bumping my head at the moment, I can't think of what it might be. 
And this is what happens to us with life and with work, right? We're, we're, we're living at bumping our heads. We know there's got to be a better way of living our life. We know there's got to be a better way of working together in this work team and our business, but we never can take the time to stop and think about a better way of coming down the stairs. And then we end up doing what Winnie does. We just resolve that the only way to come down the stairs is on the back of my head. And I guess I'm going to have to live with it. And my answer to that is no. You know, you don't have to resolve yourself to some lower brain accommodation, right, of minimizing threat and discomfort. You can actually get in the part of your brain that excites joy, creativity, excitement, passion, purpose, meaning, and value, and live life at a, at a much higher quality level of life, even in the midst of the same disruptive, chaotic environment dynamic that other people choose to go lower brain, you can choose to go upper brain. Not everybody suffered through the pandemic. Uh, there are people who thrived uh, through the pandemic. They embraced the chaos. They embraced the ambiguity. They embraced the, what are we going to do next by creating a solution for what we were going to do next? Uh, and so uh, in the next uh, part of our discussion, we might want to talk about what the four brain types are and how the four fundamental brain types respond to stress and stress threats. And so leaders understand this isn't a one size fits all, but the good news is they only need to learn four brain types. I think that's a great segue into taking a break. My guest today is Michael Fresina. He is a PhD and he has written a great book, Leading with Your Upper Brain, How to Create the Behaviors that Unlock Performance and Excellence. And I want to mention Father's Day is coming. We've got graduation coming, buy opportunities to buy gifts. And so the book is on all the bookstores and you can get that and you can make a great gift. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sets. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. Don't forget that if you would like to share this interview, go to ellenbecker.com, scroll down to Money Sense, and it will be there. And you can easily share it with uh, someone that you believe will really benefit and would like to know more about leading with your upper brain and how to create the behaviors that unlock performance and excellence. My guest is Michael E. Christina. He is a PhD and he has written this book from a lot of experience and looking at a lot of different people, companies, opportunities where we have the choice to change things for our own life. We have the choice to look at things a little bit differently. And during the break, we were talking about how I had thought about we become the society of what ifs and looking at the worst case scenario and asking yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? Because in a way that's telling yourself, whatever it is, I can deal with it. And Dr. and what you had said, Michael, was that often you'll ask people, you know, what is the number one thing that you feared a year ago? And you said most often they can't answer it. Yes, you know, there's uh, the sense in which as we, we live life, and, and particularly when fear takes over, so much of the fear that we worry about is an imagined fear. Uh, it isn't fear we've actually encountered. It's something we're afraid is going to happen in the future. And so one way of creating an upper brain mindset to alleviate that is to ask yourself, what was the biggest fear you had a year ago? What, what was the biggest thing, the worst thing that could have happened in your life a year ago? And, and most people don't remember it 
but if they do remember it, I ask them, well, did it happen? And the majority of times, the people will say no. Uh, and again, this is the, the dynamic of the power of, of the lower brain and upper brain dynamic. They're, they're in, in, uh, they, they are fighting against each other, and you have to exert your will over the natural uh, developmental stage of the human brain through the, the centuries uh, for survival versus growth and development. And then that's another way of thinking about this. Your lower brain is your survival brain. Your upper brain is your growth and development brain. And the, the reason the lower brain is so strong is because through human history, uh, the development of human history, so much of survival was dependent upon actual survival, having to ward off wild animals, having to, to fight against other people groups. And so uh, it's the, the developmental element of the brain sort of defaults to the survival side. Well, it still does. And the problem with that today in more modern times is there are less of these real threats. There's more perceived threats than real threats, but your brain can't tell the difference. So if you're just thinking about some kind of fear, your lower brain kicks in to say, well, do you want me to protect you? <laughs> and so it'll start producing the cortisol and the other neurodynamics. Uh, you know, uh, I said earlier, for leaders, for fun, I like to call this neurochemical bartending. As a leader, if you know how to behave in a way that triggers the upper brains of your team members instead of the lower brains of your team members, if you're a parent and you know how to trigger the upper brain of your teenager instead of the lower brain, if you're in an intimate relationship and you know how to behave in a way that triggers the upper brain for your partner instead of triggering their lower brain, then you increase the degree of well-being, you increase the degree of unity, you increase the degree of harmony, you improve communication, uh, you include inclusive language. Uh, uh, there's a unique phenomena called pair bonding and in people with rich, tight unity in their relationships, the language is inclusive. It's a we, it's us, it's never I or me. And uh, so you can even look at linguistic studies to determine what the mental state of a person is or their team based on the language they use as they refer to one another. Uh, and so the key here, again, uh, in the short time that we've been able to talk about this, Karen, is understanding that you have the control. You really do. People you know, want control. We hear people are control freaks. Well, there's very little in the life of the world in which we live that we can actually control. But this is one thing. If you accept personal accountability and responsibility for managing this physiological dynamic of your upper brain and lower brain, and you take control of the false signals to your lower brain. And you learn what those triggers are and you learn what those events are. And then you learn what are the key elements of your behavior pattern. Uh, there are four fundamental brain types. This is the software that runs your brain hardware. And there are four different software options to use that metaphor. Two of them are very fast paced and two are, are more moderate pace. Two tend to be people-focused first, and the other two tend to be task-focused first. So, for example, if I were to ask you, Karen, you know, when you think about your routine and how you feel your best being you, do you tend to be faster-paced or slower-paced? Faster-paced. Faster. Do you tend to focus on task first or people first? Does that not make sense? <laughs> no, which I, I didn't hear your response on that one. Task people or people? First. People first. Great. All right. So immediately, just by answering those two questions, I would put you in our scale to uh, summary dynamic in your behavior pattern. So as soon as I know that, 
I know exactly how to behave with you to stimulate your upper brain or provoke your lower brain. And if I want a good relationship with you, I wouldn't do anything that would want to impact on the removal of all that upper brain stimulation, right? So when I'm working with you, I'll be attentive to your pace. I know you tend to like things come more in bullet points. And then if you want more information, you'll ask for it. And if someone wants to inundate you with 35 pages of Excel spreadsheet data, your lower brain goes, ah, I don't want this. <laughs> Just give it to me in sound bites. You do your radio show in sound bites uh, almost, right? So immediately I know how to behave with you. And so if I flex my behavior into your pattern, you now open yourself up to inviting me into your life. And the safer I am and the more you experiencing me and my behavior that matches to your brain type, you know, you say, boy, I really liked this book and I really like this information and I really want more of it. And I really like Michael. You know, and so and that's how this works in the business world with leaders and their teams and with team members. The problem is we've confused personality with behavior. So when we have people at work or a leader with a team and they're in conflict, we think it's a personality conflict. Well, really, it's behavior conflicts. I have made this uh, a, a science study because it fits the, the criteria of science. Behavior is observable and it's measurable. Because I can do those two things with behavior, I can now link behavior specifically to other human responses based on the input behavior they receive. So again, we go to the hardware software metaphor. As long as I'm feeding your software appropriately and I'm protecting it with from malware and from cyber attack and and that's me flexing my behavior into your pattern, your brain's going to work the way your brain is designed to work, fast-paced, people-focused. And life will be great for you. And if you worked for that kind of leader, you would have be more engaging. You'd be more committed. Uh, you'd wake up in the middle of the night excited about coming to work. Uh, and so much of what we hear about toxic leadership, uh, again, doesn't go to behavior type, uh, to personalities rather. It goes to the behavior we're experiencing from people. And here's the interesting thing. I'll give you one quick example, kindness. Uh, we hear a lot about you have to be an empathic leader. Well, empathy just means I can look at you and know you're in distress. doesn't mean I do anything to help you. But compassion requires an act of kindness. So if I'm empathic and I recognize you're in distress and I now come into your life with behavior from me expressing kindness and compassion to you, you immediately get a, a dose of oxytocin in your brain. And oxytocin is a neurochemical that stimulates you to social bonding, to trusting, to becoming resilient and opening yourself up and believing I can overcome the significant event that I just encountered because someone's coming into my life to help me. The interesting thing from research is not only do you get a dose of oxytocin by receiving my act of kindness, I get a dose by giving it to you. And here's the real super sauce of this neurochemical bartending course. And that is, if someone just observes me doing an act of kindness for you, they get the same dose of oxytocin just watching it, which means when we're just exhibiting kindness, when leaders aren't uh, brusque and abrasive and rude and condescending, and they're not uh, losing their temper in meetings, and they're not throwing things in meetings, and these are true examples of everything that I'm citing to you, right? This is how aberrant behavior, disruptive behavior, 
affects the brain of the people in such a way that their critical thinking shuts down, uh, their innovation and creativity shuts down. They're going to regress into what do I need to do to be safe, work with this person and get through the day as safe as I can and avoid being in trouble and then get out of here as quick as I can. And uh, the four brain types are fast-paced, task-focused. These people are very assertive. They tend to be the people that get labeled the natural leader. They have a winning internal driver uh, that says, I'm going to win. Um, you can look at the trophy and you can touch the trophy, but you're going to have to come to my office to see it. Um, that's, they, they just So with that kind of person, I never challenge their winner drive. I never want to be competitive with them that I'm going to beat them, or I provoke their lower brain into a challenge that says, no, you're not. I'll fight you too. Uh, and this is why certain people on teams and with certain leaders have such affinity for one another is because when they match in brain types, all the markers like up, line up for them to say, I like this person. I want to be with this person. They get me. I get them. Uh, the problem is you have to have diversity in these behavior patterns on a team to have a real high performing team. And the reason for that is not every individual event or context of work or life fits one brain pattern. You know, the pandemic was a hyper accelerated, highly volatile change dynamic. Well, a fast paced, task focused person and a high paced, people focused person like you can connect to that chaos and volatility because of the stimulation of what it does for your creativity. The, the, the scale one fast paced task person wants to, to have the challenge of winning the, the fast paced people-focused person wants to be able to get things back in a stable environment to help people and help keep people safe. And so there's really two leadership dynamics. There's either a fast-paced, chaotic leadership dynamic, or there's a calmer, predictable, sustainable one. Two of the brain patterns fit the chaotic environment, and two of the patterns fit the more predictable, sustainable, calmer environment. And so this isn't a one-size-fits-all, and this is why certain leaders are frustrated and feel challenged in a context that doesn't fit their brain pattern. Uh, and this is why some people are challenged by job fit uh, because their brain pattern is better suited to a different type of job requirement and job behavior. And they're in a job that doesn't match their brain pattern. My guest today is Michael Christina, and he has written a book, Leading with Your Upper Brain, How to Create the Behaviors that Unlock Performance Excellent. And we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. My guest today is Michael Christina. He has written a book, Leading with Your Upper Brain. We've been talking about it, and we took a break at that moment where it was, okay, so many of us have been in that situation where we feel like we're just... The shoe doesn't fit. We're not in the right situation. I love the job, but I'm just feeling that I don't fit or that something's not right. How does someone make a change? How do they adapt or have that conversation? What, how, what can they do? Well, Karen, because we've been talking about this is a science-based and evidence-based approach to performance management. Now, I can use that term for the first time because your question fits into this dynamic of performance management and performance management system. And uh, 
the current model of what we do with people in organization to measure uh, how they perform and the archaic performance appraisal once a year thing, you know, leaders have got to start just literally uh, recreating and rediscovering what it is that motivates and drives human performance. And one way of doing that is have an assessment tool that will tell you what the operating software of a person is. And so we have that assessment tool. Uh, it's a 70 uh, question uh, tool, very similar to other sorts of psychometric tools that people may be familiar with. But given the answer to the range of these 70 questions, not only can I identify you as a scale one, two, three, four, fast paced task, fast paced people, moderate paced people, moderate paced task, but it gives me the intensity level of how much of the behaviors that are aligned to those four brain types you display both in a formal workplace setting, but also in other relationships and social settings. And so when, when we get this measurement, the tool is designed specifically to look at the six science-based elements of performance. So we look at productivity, how much work can someone put on their plate and how much more importantly, do they actually get done? Uh, in healthcare, which has predominantly been my area of, of professional life, we often confuse activity with productivity. Everybody's busy. Everybody's overworking. And we think because we're so busy and we're so overworking that we must be producing a lot. We must be getting a lot done. And at the end of the year, you look at the strategic plan and you say, how many of these strategic objectives and these key performance indicators did we obtain? And the answer is none of them uh, because we lost focus and we didn't have a sense of clarity and unity on what were the most important things we should be doing today. And that's, again, an indication that people are not in their full upper brain to where they can focus and they can finish. So based on these four uh, brain types, as we call them, we can predict the performance behavior of a person based on what their job requirement is for them to succeed. And so if you tend to be a, a more moderate paced, uh, task focused individual, you're going to be very analytical. You're going to have a very strong drive for precision and accuracy and rules and rule following. So you're great in a compliance oriented job behavior position where you get to write the rules, where you get to write the compliance, where you go out and check for compliance uh, with people. Uh, so they gravitate toward lean and Six Sigma and quality circles. And we find a, a large number of, of what we call our scale four types in those types of job roles. Now you take someone like you, right? Very fast paced, needs a, a great degree of flexibility. You know, you color outside the lines. You don't even see the lines, Karen, right? <laughs> Just, right. Do, do I know you now? Am I proving? Yes, Are we doing some qualitative analysis? Uh, for the sake of your listening audience, Karen and I have never met. We've never spent any more time together than what we did to uh, create this, this broadcast. But once I know what her brain software is, I know her. And then it's just a matter of me behaving in a way that maximizes the neurochemical cocktail that keeps her excited and stimulated and engaged and connected. And so taking someone like Karen and putting her in a, in a job that required a lot of detail, and not that she can't do the detail and analysis, please don't misunderstand me. We can all learn and have to accept certain parts of job roles that we don't like, uh, because there is no ideal job description. And if you could write it, 
for yourself, which I encourage people to do to discover what their upper brain mindset is. And you could go find that job. It's never going to stay that way. Something's going to have to make that job requirement evolve. And so there's the, the perfect job is perfect for today, and then it's going to change. So you have to be flexible and adaptable to move with it. And when it changes so much that it no longer suits your behavior pattern, then you can go look for another job, not because you're dissatisfied or you're not happy or you don't like your boss. That work no longer becomes stimulating for you for meaning, value, and purpose. That is absolutely amazing. You know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. We never, we never met. I wanted to uh, take a minute for you to tell my listeners if they want to know more about what you're doing, how can they reach you? How can they, um, I know they get the book, they go to all the leading bookstores, leading with your upper brain, how to create the behaviors that unlock performance. Excellent. But I mentioned that you have um, a group where they can learn and you teach people how to understand this better. How can my listeners get touch with you? Sure. The best way is just to send me a personal email at michael.frisina, F-R-I-S-I-N-A at gmail.com. Um, I've got a company the website, I uh, got a company email, but it filters with my EA. And, uh, you know, I, I'm like you, Karen, I'm a high scale too, as we say, I love people, I love engaging people. Um, I don't like the fact that I don't have access to people. And it frustrates a lot of my team that I give access to people to me directly, but I relish that. That's where my upper brain is, right? Um, I don't want a gatekeeper. <laughs> I don't want somebody filtered out, right? So michael.frisina, F-R-I-S-I-N-A at gmail.com. My cell number, direct cell, 803-760-3519. Again, 803-760-3519. Uh, that information is available on the book jacket as well uh, in the book. And I look forward from hearing from any of you in any way I can help you in any way. Um, that's what I'm here to do. Michael, this has been an absolutely great interview. And as always, I hope that I've made a difference to your personal and financial being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always have a really great weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>